The other day I stopped at a convenience store to get gasoline, went inside to pay, and there was a line of people who were buying lottery tickets. I watched them for a while and thought, why in the world would they buy those tickets when there is virtually no chance of them being a winner? Well, obviously the answer to that is because they have hope that they are going to be the exception and that they are going to be the next American millionaire. If there's anyone who lives a life of hope, it has to be Eddie Herbert, our faithful cameraman over here. Every Sunday I come in to do a sound check, and as we come in, Eddie always calls me over and begins talking with me. And he tells me how this is going to be the year that Carolina is going to turn the corner and become a contender for a national championship. And before the season begins, we all have at least a nine-game nine win with a possibility of 12. I think that he is from the Hopi tribe, but nevertheless, he is a very hopeful person. One cannot overly emphasize the importance of hope. Neil Strait wrote, Take from a man his wealth, and you hinder him. Take from him his purpose, and you slow him down. But take from man his hope, and you stop him. He can go on without wealth and even without purpose for a little while, but he will not go on without hope. You see, hope transforms us. When one goes to the doctor and is told that their disease is in remission, then the whole world is different. It is more beautiful. It's brighter than it's been. Why? Because now they have hope. Professionally, we continue on because we have hope. Hope energizes us. We continue to, to press our family forward because we have hope that one day somebody's going to turn out. Someone said, uh, I'm waiting for my ship to come in. I have hope that it's going to come in. And someone else said, if it doesn't come in, swim out to it. But we have to have hope. And so today, as we begin a new series from Peter's letter, the subject is hope. Take your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This portion of Peter's letter is a letter of hope and encouragement to Christians who were suffering and who had been broken because of their commitment to Christ. The kind of people that God can use, because the truth is, God uses broken people. Vance Havner wrote, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to produce rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. So in these verses, Peter is writing to people who are broken to to give them hope. Now, who is the author? Because there is some disagreement concerning the authorship of this letter. Well, in verse number one, he says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So according to the author, he refers to himself by the name Peter. That he is an apostle, that he is one of the twelve disciples of Christ. It is my belief that the writer is Simon Peter, one of the inner circle of Jesus. There was Peter, James, and John. So the author, I believe, of this book is Simon Peter. Then to whom did he write? Who are the recipients of this letter? If you look in verse number one, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, and so forth. He says, first of all, that I'm writing to those who are aliens, which is a biblical description of the people of God. You you see, ladies and gentlemen, if we are the children of God, then our citizenship is in heaven. And so we then are aliens here on earth. Now, this is the danger. We understand that we are citizens of heaven But we are aliens here on earth. The danger is that we so identify with our heavenly citizenship that we reject our earthly responsibility. Jesus has said to us that we are to be salt in this life. That we are to be light in a world of darkness. But if we focus only on our citizenship being in heaven, then we neglect our responsibility to be salt and light. William Barclay wrote, the Christian must be apart from the world, but never aloof from it. As believers, we understand that our citizenship is in heaven, but we have earthly responsibilities. So he refers to them as aliens. I am writing to aliens, those whose citizenship is in heaven. And then he mentions that they are scattered. The scattered. Why were they scattered? You probably recall in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus gave a commission to his followers. 
And in verse number 8 of that text, he said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, that was the commission that the Lord gave to his church. He said, you are to take the gospel into all the world. Unfortunately, the church in Jerusalem became comfortable. And rather than taking the gospel into the world, they stayed there in Jerusalem, comfortable, satisfied. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse number 1, the Bible says, And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the Lord then gave a commission to the church. He said, I want you to go into all the world, take the gospel. But instead of doing that, they remained in Jerusalem, comfortable there. And so then the Lord comes back and forces them to take the gospel into the world. Therefore, the Bible says they were scattered. So it is to these persecuted, scattered believers that Peter wrote. And his words in these verses that we are looking at this morning were words of encouragement to them. Now, how was he going to encourage them? They were aliens. They were scattered. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. And Simon Peter wanted to give them hope. How did he do that? By reminding them that the Holy Trinity was involved in their salvation. And so then he says to them, as a reminder, you have been chosen by the Father. There in chapter, in, in verse number two, he says, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He says, God has chosen you as his child. In Ephesians chapter one, verse number four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So Simon Peter is trying to encourage them by reminding them that the Trinity was involved in their salvation. And he says, you have been chosen by God the Father. I confess to you that I don't understand all about the choosing of God. I know people who do. I just don't happen to be one of them. It is my belief that all people have been chosen for salvation. That's my belief. In John chapter 3, verse number 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world, the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, no disqualification there, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So it is my belief that the Lord Jesus Christ died for all people, that all people could be saved. And I also believe that he has enlightened all people that they can come to God. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse number 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. The true light has come into the world and enlightens every man. So it is my belief, then, that the Lord Jesus Christ came because of God's great love, that He died for us, that He enlightens everyone. So I believe that salvation is offered to all, but not all receive it. The Scripture tells us in Revelation 22:17, Let the one who wishes take the water 
without cost. I know when the question of the choosing of God comes up, there is always the question in people's minds, if God chooses for salvation, did he choose me? As I understand what the Scripture says, if you have a desire to be saved, then God shows you you are one of his chosen. So he says you have been chosen by the Father. And then he says you have been purchased by the Son there in verse number 2, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So Peter is saying to them, you have been chosen by the Father, you have been purchased by the Son. And in Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, Paul wrote, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the Jews understood the reference that Peter makes here. Because on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat by which the people were forgiven of their sins. So Peter is saying then that Jesus Christ gave his life, shed his blood, and by the shedding of his blood, then we are forgiven of our sins. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 14, the author said, For by one offering, speaking of the death of Jesus, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So what does Peter say to encourage? You, and this should encourage you. You have been chosen by the Father, purchased through the blood of Jesus Christ the Son, and then sanctified by the Spirit. The word sanctified literally means set apart or to make holy. And sanctification is both an event and a process. It is an event in that when I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, then I am set apart within the body of Christ. It is a process in that after I have become a believer and am set apart for Christ, then God, the Holy Spirit, begins to work in my life to make me holy. He begins to bring conviction of sin to my life that I might put off sin out of my life that I might become holy before him. So this letter is a letter of hope. And the hope, he says, is within the Holy Trinity. You have been chosen by the Father, purchased by the Son, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now then, he describes the hope they have. He says it's a living hope there in verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, our earthly hopes sometimes don't materialize. Sometimes they die. That lottery ticket might not be the winning ticket. Eddie, this might not be the year. Now, I know you told me this morning that it was, but it might not be. Sometimes the hopes that we have die. They don't materialize. But aren't you glad that the hope you have in Jesus is a living hope? That it is an eternal hope. That it does not die. It is a living hope. He says we have a matchless inheritance. Look there at verse number 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, he is talking about the hope that we have in Christ, and he says that our hope is imperishable. And the word that is used means unravaged by any un invading army. 
And they understood that because Palestine oftentimes was invaded. And when they were invaded, they lost their inheritance. Everything was taken away. It was burned. It was destroyed. They lost their inheritance. So that's what he is referring to. He is saying that our inheritance in Jesus cannot be taken away, cannot be lost. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. So he's talking about our inheritance and he says it's imperishable. No invading army is going to come in and destroy, take away your inheritance. He said it is imperishable. And then he says that it is undefiled. Our inheritance in Christ is pure. It is undefiled. And he said it will not fade away. In other words, he is saying that this inheritance we have in Christ does not become worthless. Now, our inheritance on earth sometimes loses value, doesn't it? For instance, if you are invested in the stock market, you were wealthier last Sunday than you are this Sunday. Earthly inheritance sometimes fades away. It loses its value. But what Peter is saying is that the inheritance you have in Jesus Christ does not fade away. It does not lose its value. And then he says it is reserved in heaven. Have you seen those bumper stickers on usually on RVs? I'm spending my children's inheritance. It's a good idea, but... I don't have one of those stickers yet. Did I hear you snicker? He is saying that our inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ is reserved for us. It's better than a room that is guaranteed by Holiday Inn. It is reserved for us. And then he says that we have a protected inheritance in verse number 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The word protected literally means guarded. So here's what he's saying, is that as a believer, you have an inheritance, and that inheritance is being guarded by God. I, I told you not long ago that there are three parts to salvation. When we are converted, we are saved from the penalty of sin. I'm not going to hell. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am in the process of being saved from the power of sin, and that's the sanctification process. And one day I'll be saved from the presence of sin, and that's when I go to heaven, and that's called glorification. So there's justification, sanctification, glorification. And that's the way the Bible refers to salvation. It involves all three. And Peter is saying that your inheritance is being guarded, being protected by God. Well, folks, listen, if God is protecting my inheritance, I'm not real worried about it. Are you? Some people worry to death if they've done something to lose their salvation after they've been saved. I don't worry about that because it's not up to me. I couldn't save myself and I couldn't keep myself saved. So God is guarding my inheritance. He's protecting it. And then our hope is a hope with purpose. In verse number 6. He says, uh, in this you greatly rejoiced, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, it's unusual to put together rejoice in trials. But we can rejoice in our trials. Why? Because we understand that God has a purpose. 
that God is working out a purpose in my life. And he says, now, then trials are necessary there in verse number six again. And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, sometimes trials are necessary. Now, why are they necessary? Why do trials come to a believer? Well, the truth is, sometimes they come as a means of God's discipline. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is, sometimes the trials we go through, now I'm not saying what they are, but sometimes the trials we go through are God's discipline in our life. That is the way God disciplines us. And so some of the trials we have, we bring on ourselves because it is God's discipline of His children. The Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God disciplines His children. I disciplined my children. I didn't discipline the neighbor's children, but I disciplined my children when they were home. And God disciplines His children. I don't think that He disciplines the children of Satan, but He disciplines His children. And so trials sometimes are necessary because that is the way that God disciplines His children. And then the Bible says sometimes they are necessary because that is God's means of maturity in us. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And sometimes they are necessary to humble us. Sometimes we go through trials because God uses them in our lives to burn the pride out of our life. And boy, some of us need that, don't we? So he says they're necessary. They're distressing. He goes on there in verse number 6. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Necessary but distressing, the word distress that is used there means to experience grief or pain. Truth is, sometimes as believers, we, we go through trials in our life and they bring pain to us. They, they distress us. The pain of disappointment, someone disappoints us and we are distressed as a result of that. The, the, the distress that comes as a result of a loved one uh, Dying and leaving us, there's distress with that. However, the Apostle Paul gives us some hope even in that. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep or the believer who has died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Paul did not say that as a believer we ought not grieve when our loved ones die. He just said we don't grieve as those who have no hope. fact is, we grieve because there's a loss in our life, someone we love. But he says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. He says, trials are distressing. There's no question about that. Trials are necessary at times, and nevertheless, they are distressing. And he says they're precious in verse number 7. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I find that interesting that he refers to it as precious. Because the word precious is generally a woman's word. You know, everything's precious. Oh, that's a precious dress you have. Yeah. Oh, that's a precious little purse you have. It's a woman's word. Men don't generally use the word precious. I mean, how many of you men have called your car? You said to your, I like that car. Well, that's precious. That car's precious. <laughs> you ought to see my precious tractor. Or old Betsy, my rifle. Now, that's a precious gun, I'll tell you. Now, it's just not a, a word that guys normally use, but Peter did. He says, it, it's precious. Why? He said, well, it only lasts for a little while. The trials you go through. Look there at verse number 6. He says, and this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. The trials we go through last a little while. 
Someone said God keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat when we're going through trials. And aren't you glad he does? They last for a little while. And then they purify us. God uses the trials of lifetime to purify us, to work in our life, to get rid of the, the impurities. The eastern goldsmith, when he was purifying gold, would put it in the fire and he would heat it to get out the impurities. He would heat the gold until he could see the reflection of his face in the gold. And then he knew that it was right. Sometimes Jesus puts us in the fire and he leaves us there until he sees the reflection of Jesus. Then it's right. You see, folks, the trials that we go through in life are precious. Why? Because God uses them to burn up the impurities in our life, to purify us. They have purpose. And then there's the hope of glory, and our hope is centered in Jesus. We love him in verse number 8, and though you've not seen him, you love him. We haven't seen Jesus, have we? But I bet you almost everybody here already this morning has told him that you love him. We love him. Whenever, when you think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he changed my life, we just love him. And that's what Peter is saying. He says, though we have not seen him, we love him. And he says, and we trust him. He continues there in verse number 8. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. We love him. And we believe in him that he is at work in our life to do good. Now that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were in the fiery furnace. They believed in him. And they said to the king, though you slay me, we are not changing our mind. Though you put us in the furnace, our commitment is to the Lord because we trust Him. Daniel was faithful to the Lord because he trusted Him. He said, if you put me in the lion's den, then put me in the lion's den. But I trust Him. And friends, you can trust God during the trials of life, whatever you're going through. You can trust Him. He is worthy of your trust. So he said, we love Him. We trust Him. We rejoice in Him. He said, "You in verse number 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, regardless of our circumstances, we can rejoice in Jesus. That was Paul and Silas when they were in the, in the prison. The Bible says it was midnight. Paul and Silas were in there singing praises to God. They loved Him. They trusted Him. They rejoiced in Him. The disciples rejoiced when they were persecuted because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They rejoiced. Folks, we can rejoice regardless of our circumstances. And then he says in verse number 9, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see, the glory in Christ is eternal, the saving of souls. That's what Jesus did. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he did for you and me. He paid for our sins that we might be saved, the saving of souls. Charles Spurgeon wrote, little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. That's what Peter is saying. Put your faith in Jesus, that will take you to heaven, but have great faith in him and heaven will come to your soul down here. Peter is saying that we have hope, hope of heaven in the future. That's the promise the Lord has made. It's imperishable, reserved, it's guarded by God. We have hope 
presently today, you have hope in Jesus. For His presence, because He's promised He would never leave you. For His provision, He will meet all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We have hope of His power. He will provide you with whatever you need for this day, no matter what it is. Our hope is in Jesus, and regardless as to what we go through, we have hope in Him. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus in whom is our hope. We thank you for His provision. We thank you, Lord, that He gave His life that we might have life. And today, Father, in your stead, in your name, we extend your invitation. Lord, that those who are without Christ might be saved. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation, opportunity for you to say yes to the Lord. If you're here without Christ, He loves you. He wants to save you. If you are willing to put your faith and trust in Him, staff will be here to receive you. There's some. God has impressed your heart about becoming a member of this body. Our doors open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand and the choir sings, you come. I'll greet you as you do.